0: chapter six part b women of america by john Roos laris the sleeper Fox recording is in the public domain to in her confession had implicated the two women good and osborne and two others whose faces she could not see and the girls were importuned to name these other tormentors at first they refused probably because they had not held council to decide on the two to be named but at last they indicated two of the most estimable women in the community martha cory and rebecca nurse aged respectively sixty and about seventy years the village was thunderstruck for these women if not of the highest rank were full of courtesy and kindliness and were well educated and well-bred, none the less they were accused. Goodwife Cory, by Little Ann Putnam, at whose instigation it seems unnecessary to suggest. Goodwife Nurse, whose husband was one of the most honored persons in the village, while she herself was regarded as a model of virtue and piety by more than one of the afflicted children, as the girls were now called but the bearing of Mistress Putnam at the examination was sufficient to show where stood the chief accuser. The girls went into their regular fits at each answer to the questions, unshamed by the sight of the venerable lady standing there in her dainty dress and with her fragile figure and pure face. And Mrs. Putnam broke in on the magistrate's questions with, Did you not bring the black man with you? Did you not bid me tempt God and die? How oft have you eaten and drunk your own damnation? It is no wonder that the accused, at such a horrible outburst of vindictive hate, as she must have known it to be, raised her hands to heaven with the cry, O Lord, help me! But at that the afflicted children went into the most extraordinary convulsions and the foolish magistrate hawthorne by name who had until then been favorably inclined toward the prisoner connected the spasms of the girls with the uplifted hands of the old lady and this turned the tide against her she was remanded for trial the mischief was now fairly afoot personal malice began to work some of the girls were servants and accused their masters and mistresses as in the cases of john proctor and george jacobs on the other hand now that superstition was thoroughly awakened it ran its usual course of madness and the most absurd pretexts for accusations were eagerly fastened upon susanna martin for instance was accused and executed upon the ground that she had walked on a country road without getting her skirts or stockings muddy, and must be a witch to be able to perform such a feat. Even such a man as the Reverend George Burroughs, who had been pastor of the church at Salem for about three years, but had long left there, and in 1692 was living in Maine, was arrested on a charge of witchcraft and taken to Salem to be tried on the plea that he was, though small of stature, strong enough to lift a barrel of cider or hold a heavy musket out at arm's length. He was named by the afflicted children, but the fact that while in Salem he had been inimical to the party of Mrs. Ann Putnam makes the real source of the accusation not problematical. He was formally accused by little Ann Putnam, who said that, one evening there came to her the apparition of a minister, and asked her to write her name in the devil's book. Then appeared two women in shrouds, who scolded the first wrath away. Then the two women told Anne that they were the ghosts of the first and second wives of Mr. Burroughs, who had murdered them, and one of them showed to the child the gaping wound which had been inflicted upon her. AND SUCH TESTIMONY AS THIS, MR. Burroughs, A MAN OF HIGH STANDING AND DEEP LEARNING, WAS CONDEMNED TO DIE. NOR WAS THIS AN ISOLATED CASE. ON THE CONTRARY, IT WAS THE RULE. SO NUMEROUS GREW THE ACCUSATIONS THAT SIR WILLIAM Phipps, THE FIRST ROYAL GOVERNOR, APPOINTED A SPECIAL COURT TO TRY CASES OF WITCHCRAFT and nineteen in all suffered death upon such accusations as have been instanced. At last the girls made the mistake, whether or not instigated by Mrs. Putnam in these instances does not appear, of accusing persons who could not possibly be suspected of such practices, even allowing the possibility of the practices themselves. When they brought charges against the Reverend Samuel Willard, one of the most eminent divines of Boston, and Lady Phipps, the wife of the governor, they were sharply rebuked, and when they added to their list the name of Mistress Hale, wife of the minister in Beverly and famous throughout the colony for her saintly character, they ranged against them the best of all the people of the country. Mr. Hale himself had been a believer in the accusations, but now, when their falsity was thus proved to him, he changed his allegiance and declared war against the perpetrators of the real crimes, as he now saw those accusations to be. This was practically the end of the insanity, and the death blow to the panic was given when some people of Andover, on being accused, brought action for defamation of character, and thus removed the matter to its true tribunal. There were no more accusations after that. Some fourteen years afterward, one of the afflicted children, Ann Putnam, who had been the most active of all, made public confession in the Salem Church that she had been a cause of the shedding of innocent blood. She declared, however, that she had not acted out of anger, malice, or ill-will to any person, for I had no such thing against one of them. But what I did was ignorantly, being deluded of Satan. This latter declaration had been generally interpreted to mean that Anne was even then, at the age of twenty-five, convinced that she had an actual communion with the powers of darkness. In other words, THAT SHE WAS A SELF-DECEIVED SEER OF VISIONS. THE THEORY IS OPEN TO DOUBT. ANNE'S WORDS ARE AT LEAST SUSCEPTIBLE OF ANOTHER INTERPRETATION, AND, WHETHER THEY WERE INTENDED TO BEAR THIS MEANING OR NOT, IT MAY WELL BE THAT SHE WAS DELUDED OF SATAN UNDER THE FORM OF MISTRESS ANNE PUTNAM, HER MOTHER. THE COMPLICITY OF MR. PARIS, THE MINISTER, IS PROBABLE but there is little doubt that the moving spirit of the conspiracy after this had gained strength and purpose was mistress Anne putnam she was a brilliant woman in many ways a fact which is not at all incompatible with the further fact that she was a moral degenerate or at least a monomaniac it is most probable that she directed the whole progress of the conspiracy WHICH AT FIRST AROSE IN OPPORTUNITY BY THE ACCIDENT OF THE TEACHING OF THE OLD EDEAN WOMAN, AND ITS EFFECT UPON SOME HYSTERICAL GIRLS, WHO SAW BEFORE THEM A CHANCE TO BECOME NOTORIOUS, AND THAT SHE WORKED IT THROUGHOUT TO HER OWN ENDS, PERSUADING THE GIRLS THAT, HAVING ONCE EMBARKED UPON SUCH AN ENTERPRISE, THEIR sole SAFETY CONSISTED IN PLAYING THE GAME TO ITS FINISH. Possibly she also was, to some extent, self-deceived. She was a descendant of the cars of Salisbury, who were noted as being very nervous and excitable, and she was herself of the most irritable and sanguine temperament. But it seems a little probable that she was a victim rather than a ruler in the insanity which came of her fostering, for not only were her daughter and servant the most prominent members of the afflicted children, but it was her personal enemies who first disappeared into the shadows of death, and it was her hand which guided the accusation that smote every victim, until the reign of terror grew beyond even her control. She stands as the female Robespierre of America, slaying for lust of power and afterward for fear of losing her own head and she remains one of the most picturesque and yet gruesome figures that our history has produced. We shall leave this ominous figure standing on the threshold of New England as we turn southward to inquire as to the conditions existent in the other great colony of English America. But on our way it is worth while to take a passing glimpse at New York, this city had emerged from new amsterdam the old vrows, with their feather beds and their multiplicity of petticoats and their scrupulously clean houses and their floors with patterns traced in sand had passed away they had been most picturesque in their way though they left no enduring effect upon the type which we know now of the lives of the old burghers and their wives and families their characteristics and their customs we have a most animated account in the words of the master writer washington irving fine old fellows were these burghers and companionable and merry were their wives and daughters what a group is offered in the polite yet firm peter minuet the pleasure-loving but vacillating and not too scrupulous wouter van twiller frequent tilt with the irascible but honest domini bogardus the honest but ill-adapted wilhelm keft the grand old peter stuvesant despotic yet paternal in his rule stubborn but brave of another kind and in a lighter vein we have a picture of the genial and universal favorite anthony van corlier of whom irving writes It was a moving sight to see the buxom lassies, how they hung about the doughty Anthony Van Corlier. For he was a jolly, rosy-faced, lusty bachelor, fond of his joke, and withal a desperate rogue among women. Fain would they have kept him to comfort them while the army was away. For besides what I have said of him, it is no more than justice to add that he was a kind-hearted soul, noted for his benevolent attentions in comforting disconsolate wives during the absence of their husbands, and this made him to be very much regarded by the honest burghers of the city. The Vrows were comfortable persons, not given to vivacity, yet in their way individual, and that sometimes in manner not altogether commendable. We are told in the court records of Brooklyn that two ladies, Mistress Yonica Schompf and Widow Rachel Lucre, by name, actually assaulted one Peter Pra, captain of militia, when he was proudly leading his troops on training day, and so dealt with him in vile enormities, which included beating, hair pulling, and other like amenities that his life was for a time thought to be forfeit. In the matter of legal quarrels, too, there was vigor as well as characteristic type among the Frau's. We are told that Domini Bogardus and Annika, his wife, sued a female neighbor because the latter had said the chaste Annika, in crossing a muddy street, had lifted her petticoats higher than was necessitated by the mud or was consistent with modesty. The love of gossip among the burgher ladies was a characteristic that gave rise to a number of suits for slander. On the other hand, the vrows were often engaged in trade, and so set the example for the business woman of today. And in such matters, their energy and perseverance were commendable. We are told of these good vrows that they were up with the crow of the cock. Took their first meal at dawn, and ate their dinner at the stroke of noon. Then, says our chronicler, the worthy Dutch matrons would array themselves in their best linsey jackets and petticoats, and putting a half finished stocking into the capacious pocket where hung from the girdle, with scissors, pincushion, and keys outside their dress, sally forth to a neighbor's house to spend the afternoon. Here they plied their knitting needles and their tongues at the same time, discussed the village gossip, settled their neighbors' affairs as to their own satisfaction, and finished their stockings in time for tea, which was on the table at six o'clock. This was the occasion for the display of the family plate and the cups of rare old china, out of which the guests sipped the fragrant bohea. Sweetening it by an occasional bite from the huge lump of loaf sugar which was invariably by the side of each plate, while they discussed the hostess's apple pies, doughnuts, and waffles. Tea over, the party donned their cloaks and hoods, for bonnets were not, and set out for home to be in time to superintend the milking and look after their household affairs before bedtime which came at nine o'clock to the minute. The dresses of the ladies consisted of jacket of cloth or silk and a number of short petticoats of every stuff and color quilted in fanciful figures. If the pride of the Dutch matrons lay in their beds and linens, that of the Dutch maidens lay equally in their elaborately wrought petticoats, which were their own handiwork, and often constituted their only dowry. They wore blue, red, and green worsted stockings of their own knitting, with party-colored clocks, together with high-heeled leather shoes. Considerable jewelry was in use among them in the shape of rings and brooches, and girdle chains of gold and silver were much affected by fashionable bells these were attached to the richly bound bibles and hymn books and is suspended from the belt outside the dress thus forming an ostentatious sunday decoration for necklaces they wore numerous strings of gold beads and the poorer classes in humble imitation encircled their throats with steel and glass beads and strings of job's tears the fruit of a plant thought to possess some medicinal virtues this was their holiday costume the dress for work and wear was of good substantial homespun every household had from two to six spinning wheels for wool and flax whereon the women of the family expended every leisure moment looms too were in common use and piles of homespun cloth and snow-white linen attested to the industry of the active dutch maidens hordes of homemade stuffs were thus accumulated in the settlement sufficient to last till a distant generation Dalid, as we thank these old dutch people they had their amusements in which their women participated with much zest there were bees of all kind QUILTING-BEES, HUSKING-BEES, APPLE-BEES, AND RAISING-BEES, AND, ABOVE ALL, THEY LOVE DANCING, AND, THOUGH WE MAY THINK OF THEM AS HEAVY-FOOTED, IT IS PROBABLE THAT MANY OF THESE demure DUTCH MAIDENS WOULD TRIP IT ON THE LIGHT, FANTASTIC TOE, WITH AS GOOD A GRACE AS THEIR LESS SEDATE SISTERS OF THE SOUTH. BEFORE LEAVING THE NORTH, ONE SOMEWHAT CURIOUS FEMALE FIGURE OF NEW YORK, is especially worth noting as having been associated with one of the most picturesque and sorely maligned characters in our history sarah bradley daughter of captain thomas bradley and herself an englishwoman by birth in sixteen eighty five she married one william cox a man of singular character whose mother was termed alice cox alias bono for what reason does not appear?" Sarah Cox, with whom we are more intimately concerned, was at the time of her marriage a dashing young woman, of handsome face and fine figure, but so illiterate that she could not write her own name, as attested by the fact that sundry documents bearing her authorization give her mark instead of the usual signature. In latter years, however, she seems to have attained sufficient knowledge to sign her name. In 1689, Mr. Cox met with an accident, thus described in a letter of the period. Mr. Cox, to show his fine clothes, undertook to go to Amboy to proclaim the king, who, coming home again, was fairly drowned. Which accident started our commanders here very much? There is a good rich widow left john tudor who wrote the letter and had no love for cox is rather flippant in his treatment of the fatal occurrence but it seems that the good rich widow was herself hardly inconsolable for in a very short time she married again this time one john ort who in his turn soon disappeared from the scene leaving sarah a double widow and also doubly rich She was hardly to be more successful in her third marriage than the others, nor did she show much sensibility in the matter, for on the 15th of May, 1691, she took out letters of administration on the estate of her late husband, and on the 16th of May, a license was issued for the marriage of the fair Sarah to Captain William Kidd. Familiar to all is the fate of that redoubtable pirate, as he is generally held to have been, though pirate he certainly was not, and it is not convenient here to enter upon details, but there seems to be little doubt that Mistress Kidd exerted a curious and, as it turned out, fatal influence upon the fortunes of her third husband. It is averred, though it is hardly a matter of history, that her relations with the Earl of Bellamont, governor of New York, furnished the reason for the choice of her husband as the commander of the expedition, which resulted in the accusation of piracy for which he suffered, and that it was her restless ambition which induced him to accept a post which was little to his liking. Be all this as it may, Kidd was hanged, and his widow, after this time, prolonging her period of mourning to the unconscionable for her time of two years married christopher rousby and settled down to a life free from further matrimonial adventures she lived to a great age but never lost her vivacity and assertiveness and she merits a place in our record for her influence upon the romantic career of the famous long infamous captain kidd now passing by the growing towns of philadelphia baltimore and annapolis and the fading one of st mary's let us seek the old dominion and learn the conditions which there obtained in the days prior to the coming of the revolution the influx of cavaliers during the later portion of the seventeenth century had its effect upon virginia society already prone to graft the lighter of english manners and customs upon those proper to the colonial conditions in virginia the women were free untrammeled by the public sentiment to indulge their taste for gay apparel to trick themselves off with all the gauds and gewgaws that fashion could invent the towering heads of hair which were such an offence in the eyes of our puritan forefathers were tolerated if not admired, by our grandsires of Virginia. The brocade skirt, the exposed bosom, the embroidered jupe, straight corset, and gay farthingale were entirely congenial to the theories of the Virginia colonists, men as well as women. The gaiety in dress was answered by gaiety of life. With a rapidity that seemed strange in the face of the preference for the life of the country, the towns had become more populous and accessible, and they served as foci for the social functions of life. Yet, even though there was such rout and revel at Williamsburg and kindred towns, it was in the houses of the great planters that one saw the true Virginia social existence, that one found the virginia woman of the time in her truest apparition under the influences of the coming of the cavaliers and the huguenots for the descendants of the latter perpetuated the restless gaiety of their forsaken land rather than the austerities of the faith which had been the cause of their exile there had arisen in virginia something of a cult of the social function the court of sir william berkeley had been a miniature reproduction of that of his king and though some of the traditions of his time passed away with the old governor the main spirit survived in the ideals of virginia society as in all such cases there must be there was as a certainment amount of discernible hollowness but as a rule there were to be found in the best and most typical houses of virginia the graces of the society of the restoration without its vices its courtesy without its affectations an aristocracy was growing where none had been before or at least where there had been but a feeble and ineffectual leaven of one at this period the woman of virginia was the typical and representative lady of English America. Moreover, there was now entering into Virginia conditions of a sort of feudality, less in theory than in fact. There was much to recall the life of the old feudal baron. There was the same dependence upon the household for the necessaries and many of the luxuries of life. In the families of the great planters, such as Colonel Bird of Westover, whose daughter, Evelyn Bird was the pearl of Virginia ladies in her day, but died of a broken heart before she had grown past her first maturity. There was manufacture of the raw materials into the finished product, under the eye of the mistress of the house. Slavery had, by this time, become an established feature of Virginia society." and it was at its best in results the slaves answered in conditions to the feudal servitors they were retainers in a way and they were also the workmen of the home they made shoes and rough clothing and they performed all the household tasks which were not strictly within the province of the chatelaine the field hands raised tobacco and it was with this commodity that the planter bought the silks and laces which clothed his wife and daughters when they appeared en grand tignon. but though thus the lady of the manor and her duties in the training of her household servants in the supervision of the household tasks and in the provision of certain cakes and other dainties which were to be made by no hands but hers her general duty that which occupied more of her time and thought than any other, was to be effective and satisfactory as a hostess. It was thus in the southern colonies, with their greater wealth in servants and money, and their consequently greater refinement, that there first appeared the type of American woman as she was a little later to be known throughout the land. But the coming of refinement and its accompaniment, modishness, was not long confined to the Virginias. Before the ending of the latter colonial period, and the beginnings of the days of the Revolution, there were to be found refinement and modishness in Massachusetts, as in Virginia. But it was long before an equal amount of luxury was there displayed. In the North, the same distinction of station was maintained between the governor's lady and the plebeian housewife that existed in the South, between the lady of the plantation and her humbler sister of the hut. But there were fewer spouses of governors and their social equals in the North than there were wives of planters in the South. And so the developing type of American lady began in Virginia and spread thence rather than adopted from without. But everywhere... In all sections of the country, save indeed the undeveloped outskirts, where the wilderness was being forced back, and concerning which we shall busy ourselves later, when the type of the pioneer was more distinctive, there was upspringing a different type from that of the settlers or the early colonists. The American woman was ceasing to be the co worker with her husband in matters of the hands and gradually taking her rightful place as the director rather than the laborer she was still the housewife but her sphere was becoming enlarged and her ideas different the wilderness had been pushed back from her door she was as much a dweller in towns even if they were not of very great dimensions or importance as were her sisters across the great water her husband no longer wrestled with a hostile earth for a bare subsistence, but owned his houses and his lands, and held himself among the prosperous ones of the world, so that his wife and daughters were free from need of personal labor. Not that they were idle, these ladies who had blossomed from the earlier stem. We shall see that many of them were notable housewives real helpmeets to their husbands but they worked in a different manner from that of their grandmothers and they differed from those excellent dames in many things but above all in the respect for that impalpable but dominant thing called fashion and so they began to lose their individuality and take on the bearing and ways of the cosmopolitan type of women As a consequence of the introduction of luxury as a recognized condition of the American household of wealth and refinement, there came about a gradual change in the type of the sections which resulted in a leveling of the type of the whole land in its adaptation to European standards. That subtle influence of fashion permeated the land from north to south. There was then no east or west and brought all the severed types under one straight rule. No longer could the dame of the Puritans be distinguished by her outer guise, or even by her customs and manners, from her of the Cavaliers, while the intermediate woman, she of the settlement erstwhile known as Manhattan, on her part came forward with the rest to the goal of identity. There were more women of fashion in Virginia and Maryland than in Massachusetts or Connecticut, but the type was the same, and a man might travel from Williamsburg to Boston, stopping on his way at Annapolis, Philadelphia, and New York, and find no considerable difference between the woman who sped him at the outset and the woman who greeted him at the end of his journey, at least as far as the eye and ear could note. From Madam Berkeley to Madam Phipps, was no step at all. The gracious dame of the period, stately in silks and satins and brocade, was as easy to find at one end of the country as at the other. The toasts were just as lovely, if not quite so plentiful, in Boston as in Williamsburg. But all this gain, as is the inevitable law, was at the expense of compensating loss. Refinement and elegance had come to be the inheritance of the American woman, but at the cost and loss of individuality. They had come into existence as a type, which neither Puritan nor Cavalier nor Dutch, but American. Though a universal type, it was not a distinctive one, as had been the others. The word American had come to have a meaning of universality as applied to the women of this country. And was yet to have a more inclusive signification. But the passing of marked sectional differences had also brought with it the doing away as well with that subtle thing which we term individuality. As distinguished from her sisters of that country which was still termed mother, though so soon to be encountered in bitter hatred, the American woman had lost definition and personality. We now come to the period in our story when there will be no longer distinction between the woman of the North and her sister in the South in the things which have thus far kept them apart in type. There will always preserve certain racial, climactic, and inherited traits peculiar to their respective sections, but they will be none the less in mass the women of America even when we shall be forced to record the great dissension which separated our country into two nations and accentuated all of the sectional traits of its womankind as of its men there will be but different expressions of womanhood to record not different types different conditions of existence having effect of direction not differing spirits and impulses it was in the days before the darkening of the shadow of the revolution that the american woman untrammeled by conditions of residence or descent began to appear as a type she was very admirable but she was no longer unique end of chapter six part b